0: Well, it's great to be with you guys today. Um, thank you so much for the invitation. Coming up north for a bit um, from softy South uh, and the weather you've introduced me to as well. Literally, it was like within two minutes of leaving the train station at King's Cross where there was literally no snow. It was like, now we have snow. The snow is here because we're not in London. Uh, so I, really, I, had to, I was so excited about the snow, I had to FaceTime my kids and uh, make them jealous, because that's the kind of dad I am. Um, I really appreciate these mics, by the way. I feel like I'm in a 1980s, um, like, good morning television, kind of, work, kind of just love this. I, I just want, I'm just going to take this home with me, just because I feel like I'm in some kind of outer reaches news reporter somewhere. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, Well, it's great to be with you, like I said, and I've heard amazing things about G2 and it's a real privilege um, to be here today. We're going to look and begin a series that you guys uh, are going to be looking at over the next few weeks on the person of Elijah and uh, called Ordinary People, Extraordinary Lives. If you were born in 1980 or later, there are some that would say that you are a millennial. Now, I recognize there are uh, some people that might fall into that category. I'm not going to put the, point the finger. I recognize that's dangerous uh, territory. I'm not going to ask people to put their hands up. Uh, and uh, I like to think of myself a little bit as a, as a bit of a, mil- a millennial. And when I said this at my church recently, I, all I got was laughter. Um, and uh, I just thought, yeah, you smug digital natives, you know, and your millennialness. Um, and because I'm a 79 baby, so I feel like I'm just on that kind of hinge point. Um, but if you are a millennial, there is one mantra that, if you like, whether you have um, recognized it or not, that has been core to your upbringing. A mantra that has defined not just your generation, but is beginning to define our world. Because those of you who are millennials are beginning or have been for the last couple of years entering the workplace, shaping the working environment and therefore shaping much of the decisions that we are all uh, seeing around us. And that mantra is you can change the world. You have been told that if you're a millennial pretty much the moment you could understand language. that You can change the world ever since you've understood any kind of words you can change the world you've been told but I don't know about you but whenever you hear that you think well that's exciting I can change the world I can put my name into something I can invest somewhere but what is that reality for each one of us when the demands are so high just to keep life going you know, the kind of things that we, we think about often, just just getting a job and working enough just to keep food on the plate, to keep a roof above us, raising children if we have them. You know, just doing the everyday things of life just seems like hard work enough, never mind then having to change the world. And I don't know about you, but I feel very ordinary. I don't feel like someone that can change the world, no matter how much we might think or talk about it, but we are called to lead extraordinary lives. But how? I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes you take a step in one direction, it feels like there's this kind of flow of movement in the opposite direction, it just feels so hard. As uh, I was talking to Luke just a moment ago, uh, we were talking about the, uh, my family, and, and as, you know, as I said, my wife is from Chicago, and, and every now and again, we managed to make it back to the States to visit relatives. Mm. And, uh, and you know what it's like when you're booking flights. Flights anywhere are expensive, pretty much, and, and then you think, oh, I've got a great deal on a flight, and we're going to make it work, and then for us, we had to multiply it by six doesn't seem like such a great deal anymore. And so we do everything we can just to make it work. Last year we went back to the States and we took three, uh, three planes to get to Chicago just to make it work with all the kids. It's just horrendous, like Red Eiffel, anything that will work. And on, A couple of years ago we were, we were flying to the States and, and to make it work we got this really bad internal flight which basically landed in Chicago at 4 a.m. with three, at the time, three young children. Uh, but we thought, you know, it's a, it's a cheap flight, we'll, we'll make it work, it w- will happen, we can spend the money on other things, and, uh, or at least not get into more debt, essentially. And, um, and so we were kind of making our way back and, uh, uh, and we got off the plane all bleary-eyed at four in the morning into Chicago and, and uh, we were kind of, kind of making our way out of the gate. And it was, it was as we were making our way down to the luggage pickup place uh, that um, I realized that um, I had left a bag on the plane. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired and three kids and luggage and I've now left a bag on the plane and and I hate, I don't know about you when you travel, but I hate travelling with like paraphernalia and and shoes with loads of laces because I'm that guy behind you in security that does the loud tutting when you just, oh I have to take my laptop out, didn't realise that. It's like all over the screens. You've been told for 15 minutes, take your laptop out. Like I just, security to me, I just walk in automatically, this cloud appears. So I wasn't wearing any shoes with laces or anything. I was wearing flip-flops. And as we were making our way down the escalator, I had this moment when I realized I'd forgotten my bag. And in that moment, I turned and immediately started running up the escalator in my flip-flops. And I was like, literally like this. I mean, I wasn't making any progress whatsoever. And just running and running up the stairs. I was like, what am I doing? to get the bag I've left it on the plane and it's too late, all too late and and I caught the edge on the sharp edge of the of the escalators in my toe or on my toe in my flip-flops and just kind of collapse in a heap and just kind of move down the escalator in a kind of bloody mess at the end realizing it'd be far simpler to do what I ended up doing which is to go and find an advisor and they would go and get my bag off the plane in a timely manner without any injury to anyone. So I kind of limped through the airport for the rest of the day. But do you know, I think sometimes life feels a bit like when you're running up an escalator in flip-flops. Like you do everything you can to get into one direction, to move in one way. And all you are faced with is this deluge of just everything coming towards you. And you end up, you feel like life, you end up in a crippling mess at the bottom of an escalator. Maybe that's just me. And we're we're going to take the lead for this series from the person of elijah and what 's fascinating about Elijah is that not much is written about him. you know much of the major prophets in the Bible they have an entire book devoted to what they what they did and what they wrote about but elijah doesn 't have hardly anything. In fact, the only time we come across Elijah is towards the end of one kings and the beginning of two kings. His story is kind of across both uh, books, which actually would have been one scroll once upon a time, and we've just divided it up over the course of church history into two separate books, which is a history book. But we find Elijah in the middle of these pages. But not much is written about him, and yet the impact that he had was huge. We don't know much about him, and yet he is often mentioned in the same breath as Moses. One of the great forefathers of the faith. Someone that, was, according to tradition, wrote the first five books of our Old Testament. I mean, a significant man of faith. He is mentioned by Jesus, referred to as by Jesus. He, he is John the Baptist was seen as an echo of him. Who was this man that when he hadn't written anything or or spoken anything particularly profound as to write a whole book about him, people centuries, millennia afterwards are still talking about him? What was it about this man, Elijah, that had such a huge impact? Well, the people of Israel are for a long part of their history were uh, migratory, nomadic people. And their people, their identity as a people was that they are chosen by God to change the world. They were chosen by God to be good news to every other nation surrounding them. They were called to live extraordinary lives, prophetic lives. And in those days, it was it, your relationship with the land, with the geography of a place, formed a core part of your identity as a people group. And so for the people of Israel, it was absolutely key. The whole role of geography, it's not like they're just going on a big field trip just for the heck of it. It is core to their sense of who they are. A land shaped a nation's identity. They were nomadic, and then eventually, of course, they settled. One kingdom One king, the King David. And all was good. I've got a map of what it would have uh, looked like. This nation united under King David. Not there? That's fine. Uh, It would have been united under King David. But it only lasted a generation. It was good. They looked after this for so long, but it was good for just one generation. Under David's son, Solomon, it was getting bad. And then eventually his son, Rehoboam, then divided it into two separate nations, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. They split. They couldn't get along. So David's grandson, Rehoboam, oversaw the division of the nation, nation of Israel and the nation of Of Judah. And those nations had split from one another. You might consider it the Brexit of 500 BC. Maybe Isrexit? No? No? We won't do that. Okay. So uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, as they they moved together that formed to settle the united nation of Israel, split. Ten of them rebelled and went and formed the new nation of Israel, and two of them formed Judah. And then there were a succession of kings who are rated and evaluated in the books of one and two kings based on whether they were good or bad. And that was all adjudicated, dependent on whether they were the kind of people that led people in the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, or whether they led people to worship other gods. You see, they are so focused on worship being the core of what it means to be a a person of the community of Israel. Because worship is core to human identity. We were made to worship. It is built within our human condition to worship. We will always worship, whether we acknowledge it or not. The question is, the question is not rather, do I worship? The question is instead, what do I worship? Now, one of the religions that the people of Israel, when they began to settle into the promised land, one of the religions that they were confronted with was a fertility religion. And it was called Baal worship, B-A-A-L. And King Ahab, one of those kings of the new kingdom of Israel, is drawn into this uh, religion. He marries a woman called Jezebel, who was a priestess of this cult of Baal. And she brought all the Baal worship with her. And it's a radical form of Baal worship. And because she married the king, it became part and at the heart of Israel's culture. Baal was originally worshipped by the Canaanites, but it began to be practised by the people of Israel. Now you might ask yourself, why on earth are they worshipping anyone else other than Yahweh, the God that had led them, remember, from the slavery of Egypt into the Promised Land? Why would they worship anybody else? The thing is, when they settled in Israel, where the people in what was to become Israel, the Canaanites that were there, worshipped this god Baal. And when when they settled in this land, they looked around this land and saw that it was green. They saw that it was a fertile land. They saw that there were these people who were able to live off the land. It was bountiful. There was fruit and vegetables. You could live off it. You could... You could cultivate the earth and you could make money from it. You could sell produce to your neighbors and and you could live. And suddenly you could see that life was sustainable here. Now when the people of Israel arrived, remember they were migratory people. When they landed there and they looked around, they saw that these Canaanites that were worshipping Baal, Baal was a member of, uh, was the God that they worshipped, was a God that they worshipped because of the fertility that he brought to the land. So you're a member of the people group of Israel as they move and they settle in this land and they look around and you see these individuals who are prosperous, who have great land and it's green and bountiful and all the things that you want. And and the reason that they say their land is bountiful and plentiful is because they worship a fertility God, Baal. What about you? You've never had a home. You're the people of Israel. Your God is not a God that is found in the plenty of the fertility of the land. Your God is a desert God. Your God you encounter in the wilderness, in the land where it's hard to find bread and, and, and even water. Your God is not the God of the plenty. But your God seems to be the God of the poverty. And so they end up being attracted to the God around them. And they get to this land full of rich abundance. And they look at the people of Cana and they say, your God must have blessed you. They look at what they would like and think the grass is literally greener where you are. Baal was the God of fertility often portrayed uh, in statues and pieces of art with thunder and lightning. And because, of course, it's the rain that he would bring to bring the fertility of the land. And in the winter, it was considered that he would go to the underworld and the land would become less fertile. But in the springtime, the worship of Baal would begin again. They would worship Baal because they wanted the 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 earth to be green again. Hopefully, he would bring fertility with him. So in their worship of Baal in the springtime, around this time of year, they would summon the god Baal and they would start and begin a a whole heap of practices that would involve uh, summoning him back to life from the underworld. And what would bring him back to life? was the offering of that which symbolizes all life. And that was blood. Animals would be sacrificed most of the time. But sometimes what was practiced, including amongst the Israelites by this point, it wasn't just animals, but it was human beings sacrificed to the God Baal. The offering of human life would be an offering to Baal that would bring him back to life. And they would gather at a high point where the temple of Baal would be. And in the middle of this high point would be a roaring fire. And that fire would be encased around a sculpture or something that would represent the idol that they were worshipping. The Bible uses the word tophet. And mothers who followed the practice of Baal. In this time of worship, as they summon the fertility of the land, would take their children, their babies usually, and make an offering to the god Baal. And that offering would be placed in the hands of a priest of Baal, and and that priest would place that child into the roaring fire. It's horrific. Why would anyone do that? But they did. You see, what they wanted, so consumed by were they by their need for things, by their desire for the fertility of the land, that they would make any sacrifice to gain that. They wanted Baal's blessing. For personal and financial and material success. They wanted Baal's blessing for crops to grow. That they could eat and live off. That they could sell to their neighbor and and gain an income. You see, worship at its heart is giving that which has worth to the one that we believe has all worth. Giving that which has worth to the one that we believe has all worth. And they were so transfixed by Baal that they would give up even their very own for personal gain. You see, the worship itself of Baal was not actually, at its heart, a worship of Baal. The practice of the worship of Baal was essentially a worship of themselves. It was essentially a worship that was designed to gain for them all that they wanted their needs, their wants, their desires. And they'd make any sacrifice for that. My question for us this evening is, what in our culture are we willing to sacrifice for our own personal gain, for our needs, whether globally, nationally, Locally, personally, what are we willing to lay on the altar that which has worth for the sake of something else that we believe has more worth? It's into that context, and I wanted to spend a bit of time there. Because it's only there that we begin to understand what Elijah steps into. Because it's into that context that Elijah steps up the scene is set. That's the kind of thing that day by day, the people of Israel and those around them were engaged in. And Elijah steps in, bursts onto the scene, and he shows up. There's no slow introduction to Elijah. Elijah's name uh, means, my God is Yahweh. And in the Old Testament, your name and your calling were all wrapped up together. It's for Yahweh to say, it's for Elijah to say, hey, guess what? I'm Elijah and, oh, look at me. My God is Yahweh. Surprise. Not Baal. Not these other things that you choose to worship. My God is Yahweh and my life is going to be orientated around that very statement. So Elijah shows up. And we're introduced to him. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba and Gilead. He responds to the call of God to challenge a culture Where other gods that bring death are worshipped. We live in a culture in 2018 where the enemy is real. Jesus was very clear about that. How did he define the actions of the enemy? He says the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. and We see that in so many ways. People's lives being impacted by the the work of the enemy, essentially. And I'm not trying to over-spiritualize things, but where where things are literally stolen from people. I'm not talking about the odd iPhone every now and again, or the odd bag snatched at a station. I'm talking about real things that are deep to the core of our identity as human beings. Stolen from them. Things that are destructive each one of us and the lives of those around us things that kill bits of us the enemy comes to steal kill and destroy life is being destroyed right in front of us you don't have to go very far you could go to your next door neighbor or you could go to your uh, colleges or you could go to your news headlines if you want but life is being destroyed right in front of us, just as it was for Elijah. Elijah could see what Baal was doing to the culture at the time and said, Enough! My God is Yahweh. And unknowingly, we are in a culture where we worship the very things that cause us death. And not the one who gives us life. We seek money and fame at all costs. We get suckered into an Instagram culture where we're valued on our likes and our retweets and and the number of comments that we get on our Facebook page as if that gives us any kind of value. I'm raising almost a teenager. She may as well be a teenager. And I'm dreading the one day that she finally realizes that there is a world out there of social media because I don't know what it would do to her. The challenge is, of course, is that none of those things are inherently evil. The way that sex is used to destroy relationships, the way that we just move from partner to partner as if that's okay and just seen as okay, not being aware of the damage that it might do. See, none of those things are bad. Money is not in and of itself bad. Sex is a gift from God relationships and being able to meet and and i've got friends that i friendships that i've managed to maintain because of social media those things are not in and of themselves bad but what the enemy does he takes that which is good and twists it to steal kill and destroy the thing is we personalize it but it's not about the people we personalize often the things that we struggle with. It's not about the people that uh, may be involved in those things. It's about the enemy behind those things. And we are called into that context as ordinary people to enable others to find not death, but life. But it often feels like we're swimming against the tide or maybe running up an escalator with flip-flops on. Like It feels like it just seems like it's just too much. And we are called, though, to live as ordinary people, to point people to where there is life, just as Elijah was. God calls his people just as he has always done. Ordinary people made extraordinary by the same spirit of God that made Elijah extraordinary. So how? How on earth are we going to begin To live an extraordinary life. Well, I've got four points for you this evening. The A, B, C, and D to begin extraordinary life. The first thing that Elijah was is that he was all in. He was all in. He makes this promise. He bursts onto the scene. We don't know anything about him. He makes this promise and he is utterly, utterly committed. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. This is Elijah's statement of intent. He responds to his culture by challenging the God, the idol at work that promised them life. But in this statement is a statement of commitment. Commitment. He's absolutely all in. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. He says, if we go back a slide, he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will will be neither dew nor rain. And so he is absolutely committed. He's committed. He's all in and committed to a living God. Not one that dies at wintertime and has to be summoned up by some weird and desperate ceremony. Requires our blood to live again. A living God, not a one that is dead. Living and active, one that offers life, not death. He's committed too to Israel. He uh, He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. Elijah loves the people that he's called to and is committed to them. And he says, God is for you and you and you. So for us to be people that live extraordinary lives, we need to be the all-in kind of people that are committed to a God who lives and to a people around us. And that commitment is one of service. Whom I serve, Elijah says. He is all-in but subject to the God he serves. But nothing is about his own personal gain. So we need to be people that commit. We can't be people to wait for life to come to us. We need to be people that step into that. We want to be all out, kind of, all in kind of people. Secondly, he was bold. We find here that the next verse he says, well, in that same verse, he speaks to Ahab the king. It's interesting. It doesn't say King Ahab here. It just says, says to Ahab, everybody knows who Ahab is. Ahab is the king married to the priestess Jezebel. Everybody knows. And there he is. He doesn't knock on the door and says, excuse me, if I could I just have five minutes of your time, please. or book it in two months' time. We'll find a space. He just walks in, waltzes in, and lays this down at the foot of King Ahab, a man who has the power of life and death over anybody whom he sees. Elijah is bold. He's courageous. And he then also knows, of course, that he is challenging at the very heart of Ahab's family. Jezebel, of course, is a priestess of the cult that Elijah is trying to speak against. He's trying to say, well, you know this fertility, God, that your wife, by the way, is interested in. There's going to be neither dew nor rain. You need to worry about the fertility of your land that you're in. I mean, he's right going to the heart of the family. He is courageous. And so, like, uh, like him, we too need to be uh, courageous. And like I said, everybody knows who Ahab is. No one knows who Elijah is. Do you know what's interesting? Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbur and Gilead. Most scholars don't know where Tishbur is. He's from a backwater town, from a backwater family. No one knows who he is. He couldn't be more ordinary if we tried. And he goes to the king of Israel and says, excuse me, this fertility God thing, got to stop. By the way, there's going to be no rain. And you'll notice. Bye. And leaves. He was courageous. Thirdly, he was captivated. Because he was sold out, he was willing to go anywhere and do anything. He was captivated by the calling that God had placed on his life. And that meant that he listened and obeyed. And so he goes, he, he, he gives this message to Ahab and then disappears and, and finds himself. He, he, God tells him to go and hide into the, into the, into the ravine. And if you look up, you do actually know where the Kerith Ravine is, and it's a pretty desperate place. And fourthly, he was dependent. The obedience that he had meant that he trusted God to provide. When, if we want to be the kind of people that live extraordinary lives, it doesn't mean things are mapped out for us. So many of us want the blueprint to our lives. We want to see like the 20-year, 30-year plan. You know what Elijah had? He had one step and then the next step, and then the next step. It's brilliant. He doesn't know what's going to happen after he sees King Ahab. He just goes to see King Ahab. Okay, go and see the king who has power over life and death. Okay. Hey, king, I know you're married to Jezebel. Um, That fertility thing can't happen anymore. What now? Go and hide in the ravine. Great, I've got you. He doesn't have a blueprint for his life. He doesn't know where it's going, but he's willing to step in and step out for God. It feels like in some ways he's making it up as he's going along, or you could argue. He's so dependent on God that all he needs is the next step. And he's willing to say yes. He doesn't need the whole picture to obey, he just needs the next step. If you trust God, it's so much easier to obey, right? If you trust the person that's giving you instructions or leading you, it's so much easier to say yes. My kids, trust me to some extent. If I say that crossing the road is dangerous or not, they will hear my voice and listen. It's so much easier to obey that. And so we find at the end of the passage today, he spends ages in this ravine, being prepared by God for what he was called to do. Living an extraordinary life and being dependent on God also means sometimes just waiting. And yet so many of us are so urgent and desperate to get on with life. And we've got things to do and plans to make. And th- 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 what do you mean wait 10 years? If you look through the Bible, waiting is a major theme. Moses, 40 years. Abraham, 100 years. I mean, endless amounts of wait. Jesus' ministry didn't start for 30 years and he only had three years to have a shot at it. God is as much about the preparation as he is about the, 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 the destination. And Jesus says, if you've been faithful in the small things, then you'll be trusted with the bigger. And Elijah's obedience was not flashy. It was simply to say something to King Ahab. It wasn't a flashy act. And I believe God has called us to be a prophetic people, to be people in our workplaces who point to God through our words and actions. And that's just the beginning of living extraordinary lives. To be people that are all in, to be people that are bold, to be people that are captivated and dependent on God. The word ordinary actually comes from the Latin, which which means orderly, that which we have control over. And I believe that if we're going to live extraordinary lives, it means letting go of the ordinary. The things that we control, the orderliness of life. And being given something extra from the one who created us to be co-workers with him. I believe we're called to be change agents in our world. Not through anything that we have to offer, but through what God does through us. And to be willing to say, yep, I'm in. The one who holds all things in his hands. The one who, like Elijah, can call the birds of the air to feed you in a time of need. To say, yeah, I'm in. My prayer for us all is that we would be ordinary people, simply saying, I'm in. Wherever that is, whatever the call is upon your life to be people that go against the time, but to be holy in the hands of a God who empowers us to follow his voice. Let's pray together. And I'm going to call the band up. Why don't we stand just where we are? I don't know whether this is something that you feel comfortable doing just going to pray for the spirit of God to to fill us just as he did Elijah. And uh, you might find it helpful to have your hands out in front of you just to, just to receive from him. If that's something that you feel comfortable doing just just receive. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come And that you would fill each one of us afresh. Just pray for more of you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Don't worry about what anything else is going on. Just keep receiving from him. Just got a sense, just as we're waiting on the Lord, that there might be someone here, maybe more than one person here, that when I talked about Elijah only knowing the next step, he didn't have the blueprint, that there are some of you that were like, I know what the next step is. I know what that is for me. And that really just hit home in, in, in a way, and you've been waiting for the big picture, and, and actually the Lord has just given you just a glimpse of, of the first step. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'd speak to us as your people this, this evening. Just receive from him. We're going to go into a time of worship. And... Uh, and I'm going to hand over to the guys to lead us but just receive from him as we worship together.